0: Hi, I'm Gigi, and this is Driven Minds, a Type 7 podcast. In this series, we talk to our cultural heroes to learn how they navigate through challenging periods of their lives. By sharing our stories, we hear ourselves and others, our thoughts, our worries, our insecurities, and only then do we realize that we are never as alone as we think we are. So most of us have pushed ourselves to our mental or physical limit at some point in our lives, and it was likely at the expense of our well-being, whether that's pulling an all-nighter or constructing a schedule that puts you in five places at once, even though we only have one body. And while this hustle can be necessary at times, the adages and rhetoric around efficiency that have been so hardwired into us since birth, like just push through it, or when the going gets tough, the tough get going, are so unhelpful. And as we'll see today, pushing yourself has a cost, even for an Olympian. Alexi Pappas is a Greek-American runner who represented Greece at the 2016 Olympics in Rio. She also doubles as a filmmaker who's written, produced, and starred in movies including Tracktown and Olympic Dreams, where she shared the screen with Nick Kroll. Alexi has been really open about her struggles with depression and trauma before and after the Olympics. She recently put it all into her book called Bravey chasing dreams, befriending pain, and other big ideas. So here it is, my conversation with Alexi Pappas. Maybe
1: some of the other things that I have going on. So I often meet people to run, but sometimes like I will run on my own and then I can pick any time to run. So it just depends on the day.
0: And you always feel like running, like you always find that discipline to run. I don't think that any
1: professional runner feels like running every single day, like for sure. And I think that that's one of the things that when I realized that that was true, I was like, oh, I have like permission to <laughs> feel like that too, you know? And cause it is, it is a job and like there is a lot, That goes into it and it's a lot of mileage. So Mm -hmm. I think for sure it's not something that we feel like doing every day, or you might feel like running six miles, but you have to run like 18 or something. So Mm -hmm. that's okay though. I think it's more about, I try to set it up so that it's the most likely scenario that it's gonna be like feasible and fun. So that often means meeting people and setting a time and all that.
0: But who can run? at your mileage. Like you must just have a hard time finding a running partner that could keep up with you. No, it's, you know, teams
1: are really helpful for that because it's like built around having that company. But I found in LA, there's like a lot more runners than you might expect. And it might mean that like I run with guys sometimes, or I run with a group of people where some Mm -hmm. people are running, Less mileage, but at least you have company for some of it. So it might be like I run ten miles with someone, and then I do the last seven by myself, and that's been fine as long as I have like some accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's
0: really helpful. What do you say to yourself the days when you wake up and you're just like, I just don't feel like doing this today. Like I just cannot motivate. All I want to do is like put the sheets over yeah. my head and just stay here.
1: Um. Well, some days that means that I need to put the sheets over my head and stay there a little longer. But if Mm -hmm. again, like I think calling it practice, even if I'm just meeting myself is really helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think I don't expect to feel great every day. So I'm not, I don't take that as seriously as long as it's not like I feel crappy every single day, you know, but I expect that there are going to be those days. So I'm not as offended by them, I think. Know,
0: yeah, I find that expectation to be really key. Like when you expect yourself to feel good every day and you don't, then the guilt and the uh, madness at yourself is so much more intense. You know, like it's kind of reminds me of your rule of thirds a bit.
1: Yeah, yes, do you want to talk about that? Sure, sure. So, my yeah, I learned this thing before the Olympics, which was the rule of thirds. And it was a coach of mine who had been to the Olympics and he'd kind of seen the, I think the ups and downs that are natural with chasing like any dream really. And he told me during a particularly grueling workout that I couldn't hit any of the splits on. He told me that it was okay. Of course, I was like freaking out. And I was like, this means I'm not ready for the Olympics. And he's like, no, it's okay. It's the rule of thirds. And that means that when you're chasing any of these big dreams, you're supposed to feel good a third of the time, okay a third of the time, and crappy a third of the time. And um, that was life-changing for me because I started to kind of enjoy and expect the crappy days and um, even take them as indication that I was chasing my dreams. And, you know, as long as the ratio was not too off, meaning if I felt good every single day or great, then I might not be pushing myself hard enough. And if I felt crappy too much at the time, then um, that was also a sign of like fatigue, you know? And so that Mm -hmm. really helped me. And and I think it goes beyond sport too.
0: Yeah. So do you apply that in real life too? Like whenever you're making a film or something, will you kind of separate your life into those three components of?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it doesn't, truly, you know, making a film or doing anything challenging is not supposed to feel great every single minute of it. And I think I I kind of like accept that and, and put it in front of me. And I can feel joyful even about the challenging third because the bigger picture mm-hmm. means that I'm doing it. I'm like chasing this dream. And I think it even applies to relationships and you know, Mm. like friendships or love or, you know, anything really. And it has just helped me stay calm when I don't feel amazing every day, you know?
0: Dartmouth. That's when you started taking running seriously, which blows my mind because you accomplished so much for being A, a late bloomer. And B, I loved reading how for the first like two years of college, There wasn't a single Sunday when you wouldn't run hungover, and the freshman me feels so seen. (laughs) Yeah. And and I'm curious, just like, I mean, college is hard enough, let alone Dartmouth. How did you manage doing a full course load while being a professional athlete? Like, what did a typical day look like? Yes, well, I was a college athlete, so it was like, the
1: idea was that it was all meant to support one another, but... You know, at Dartmouth, and I think at some schools, it's it is challenging. And the truth was, when I got there, I was very unprepared for a lot of things, including the academics. Like some people, I think, uh, will go to a school like that, and if they've come from like a prep school, the Dartmouth course load will feel easier in some ways. And for me, it was the opposite; it felt much harder, and I failed. You know, those tests early on I thought I was gonna like fail out of the school and I remember and likewise at the same time I was trying to run and I was like the worst on the team so it was like a hard freshman fall I knew that I could love this school and this place but I was like I feel underwater Mm -hmm. and I remember calling my dad and just being like I don't know what I'm doing like I'm in New Hampshire I'm not from this place it's gonna snow soon I'm failing everything and he was just like, look, just keep trying. And mm-hmm. I I like loved and hated that my dad would say that to me because I really do think that the good news and the bad news about not giving up is that it works. Mm-hmm. It just takes a lot of effort. And so mm-hmm. I had to, you know, I knew how to work hard. I wasn't like just instantly smart or new, but I knew I could learn how to learn and I could learn mm. how to, run. And so I had to like meet with my professors outside of class and figure out why was I picking the second best answer instead of the best answer. And right. I needed to read great essays and try to learn how to imitate them until I had my own, you know, backbone as a writer. And, mm-hmm. and all those things just showed me that we can be students of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sometimes not fun to feel like We have to put in more effort than other people, but it's okay because we know Mm -hmm. that like it'll, it will work if we put in the time and, you know, the improv comedy, I think really helped me stay grounded. So I was home from one of the meets because I wasn't good enough to travel. And there were all these emails about this improv group. And I went and auditioned because I had nothing else to do that weekend in terms socially. I didn't know anyone. And that ended up being, like, the most life-changing thing for me because mm-hmm. it, it was a counterbalance to the athletics. It was like having built-in big brothers and big sisters at school, and it kept me really uh, grounded, and I liked performing. So that was helpful.
0: I feel it's impossible to talk about your life without talking about your childhood and the impact that your mom had On your identity. So, for anyone who doesn't know your story, would you tell us about that? Yeah. So, I lost
1: my mom when I was four, almost five, and she took her own life. And what that looked like for me was just experiencing some really like challenging early childhood memories of instances of like bad pain and just someone who you know, was very, you know, at the very end of her life and very, very sick.
0: Can you explain bad pain? Because I think that's really, it's an interesting one. What you mean by that? Yeah.
1: Well, it's it's easier to explain bad pain as it relates to good pain, which I think, (laughs) you know, good pain is anything where we're pushing ourselves in a place that is fundamentally good, like in sport. As long as you're not injured, I think that's good pain. I think the pain of anything creative is good pain. Um, It's like facing some kind of outermost truth, right? And, uh, you know, falling in love or having your heart broken, I think that can be probably equal parts good and bad pain. But bad pain to me is like self-harm or hurting somebody else or um, just feeling thoughts of being you know unhelpable or you know being injured or sick like i think those are mm-hmm. bad pains and um what i saw of her was like bad pain in terms of like her constant state you know she mm-hmm. was bipolar and manic and in and out of all these hospitals of various for various reasons and um self harm you know and that scared me mostly because as a really young kid, it made me feel like, one, I wasn't going to have help in the traditional way from a mom. Like, it wasn't, she wasn't able to help me. And that's a time when, like, you really want help. And yeah. two, my five-year-old self kind of felt like I must not have mattered enough for her to stay or for her to help me. And surely that's not the case when someone is that sick, but but as a child, that's all I could, like, really understand. Right. And so it, drove me, I think, to matter and Mm -hmm. to matter to everybody else. And that was really powerful and it was really unsustainable because we can't, you know, live a whole life driven by a trauma like that. It just doesn't really work. Um, And I learned that uh, I think the hard way after the Olympics, and I don't know if we want to go there yet, but it, you know— doesn't, it doesn't work right right it, it got me there, I think, in some ways like I was a talented runner and I worked hard, but I think I was driven by like a desire to not be like my mom and to be to matter to be successful in ways that would make me as distant from her as possible
0: yeah it's it's so difficult in retrospect to Think about how you would have done something when what you did, even though if it was done out of trauma or desperation, got you there. Yeah. And it's so funny. Our last guest was um, Ariana Huffington, and she was talking about how she built the Huffington Post based on these tireless hours she worked, you know, and then she kind of dialed it all back. But it's so easy to be like, oh, you know, in retrospect, I wouldn't have worked that hard when that hard work is what got you there, which is a hard thing to analyze in retrospect to say you even wish you did it differently, right? Like when that trauma of losing your mother is what drove you.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting too because then what are you trying to give? Like, what is the memoir? Like, I wrote a memoir, Mm -hmm. Bravey, and what is that, as you know, and what is that then? Because we're not Mm -hmm. asking or wishing that anyone repeat our experiences or imitate exactly what we did. But I think a great memoir gives people— food in the form of words and like vocabulary shifts where they don't have to have the trauma or the unhealthy drive or the bad pain to get to the destinations. And because right. eventually you learn vocabulary and mindset to like healthily, you know, mm-hmm. chase your your dreams and, and, and live a happy life. Um, and that's so interesting that you, that, you know, you point that out because… Otherwise, what what are we saying, you know, really for to somebody who has big goals, but does or doesn't have the catalyst, you know, that kind of catalyst, at least.
0: I love the anecdotes you tell in your book, how You didn't want to have a conversation about underwear shopping with your dad. So you cut full bummed underwear into thongs and how your sexual education came from when your dad took you to see Titanic, right? I was fortunate to grow up with my mom around, yet I still identified with you completely. My first exposure to sex was also seeing Titanic with my dad, and I remember how I saved up enough allowance to buy a thong at Victoria's Secret just so I didn't have to ask my mom to take me. How did growing up in a house of men affect your understanding of women and femininity?
1: Yeah. Oh, I—well, it's cool, too, that you, like, identify with it even having a completely different, like, on-paper circumstance. Yeah, totally. Because, right, like—and I've always had this fascination that even if I had a mom, maybe it wouldn't have turned out any—like, who knows? You know, like, it. it <laughs> I think it would be hard to have a mom, just like I think it would be hard to not have a yeah. mom. You know, it's a challenging dynamic. And so I love that. And, you know, it was— it was equal parts frustrating and funny to me to grow up like this because I had, like, the self-awareness of, like, the ridiculousness of, like, my dad teaching me how to shave my legs and haphazardly, um, you know, trying to—I Well, I don't know. We were all, like, dating at the same time, like, my dad, yeah. my brother, and me because he, my dad, you know, eventually started to date. And there were things about it that felt like we were functioning more as— um, like a team, mm-hmm. rather than a traditional family structure. And sometimes that felt really unfair. Like I didn't want to be responsible for dinner or like certain things. But it, but in other right, times, like, yeah, like it was just sometimes I was like, this isn't, this doesn't seem very normal. Um, but in other times, I really appreciated the respect mm-hmm. and the freedom where I wasn't being watched so closely. And I don't know if that has to do with growing up with guys or men or just my unique guys and men and that my dad Mm -hmm. was, you know, and he's an engineer. He's not, doesn't talk about his emotions as much. Um, And he expresses love through, uh, I think, just like giving me the basics that I need and getting, Mm -hmm. getting me to go move towards action rather than thinking or talking about my feelings um, I think it was he really parented intuitively and a lot of it ended up I think being really effective it just wasn't always um, it wasn't always like cushiony like I mm-hmm. didn't always feel I always felt this thing where I wanted him to help me more and he never helped me in the ways I wanted him to but I think he helped me in the ways that I needed him to and that you can only tell in retrospect, right? So the person in the memoir is definitely not as wise as the person writing it. And, the you know, when I wrote it, I was like, wow, that was all very great. And it led me to where I am. But when I was in those moments, I was like really um, frustrated, to be honest. And did not think it was very funny that, um, <laughs> I don't know, that, you know, I couldn't have a conversation with him about certain, you know— feminine things and then when it came to like what kind of woman was I going to become to get back to your question I just like not even
0: like what kind of woman you were to become but even just like how you perceived a femininity when like I don't know for me like mine was really stereotypical like my my mom had like red nail polish and wore high heels so that was like my exposure to femininity you know yeah so I'm kind of curious like what yours was or if you had to explore and discover and construct your own
1: Yes, I definitely constructed it. And I think what was funny or what was great about it was that the broad things, like the obvious things I got from observing other people in the ways that I could, almost like, um, you know, I would go fishing for things by way of watching movies or watching Mm -hmm. my friend's moms. And I would, you know, gather information about womanhood through them. But then there were things that I completely missed um, that I don't know. I don't know that they like— these things mattered or didn't matter. But I remember, you know, little examples, like my mother-in-law eventually, I remember she commented, this is like when I'm like in my 20s, right? About like my cuticles. And these were things that like, I would not have observed. That's too fine of a detail to be like, oh, my friend's mom's or like, Natalie Portman or whoever I look up, like they surely push their cuticles back or whatever. Yeah. But so, but she asked me about it. And I was like, I've never even thought about my cuticles. Like never once thought about them. And things like that, that really probably didn't make a difference at all growing up. And I'm kind of thankful that that minutia was like not mm-hmm. even in my mind. Um, <laughs> but certain things like that, or I thought, I don't know. I I There's an example where like I really didn't know I thought my ovaries were, like, in my eyes. And, like, that's so silly and stupid, but, like— I love it, that story. <laughs> but that's that—you know, that was in high school, right? Um, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one who thought things like that. But you some of that minutia just, like, didn't ever come into conversation, for better and for worse. I think yeah. for better, because some of the minutia just gets in your way. For um, yeah. worse, because sometimes I was in humiliating situations
0: learning the truth about those— things later in life. I so get it. I mean, I feel there are all these small things that you kind of have to figure out as a woman that are just so annoying. Like I remember I wasn't like, and I wasn't, it wasn't until I was 21 that I even like knew what a gynecologist was. And my mom was like, how are you not seeing a gynecologist? And I'm like, I didn't know that that was even a thing. Like I didn't, I doesn't my, you know, my GP do that. And she's like, no, you, you have to go to a different doctor." To look at your vagina. And that was just, I'm like, Jesus, like I have to shave my legs. I have to, you know, ideally get a manicure, which I never do. Like all of these constructions of what, m- what it means to be feminine and a woman in America. I was just like, how does anyone work and, you know, do all of these, these roles of upkeep or these exercises and activities of upkeep? I, I was equally as lost, you know? So yeah,
1: I totally really, get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure Um, Even if you know that those things exist, it's hard to decide whether or not you want to participate in them, right? And ideally, we would be able to, like, window shop life in terms of, like, have a a wider range of what we know exists. And then we would be allowed to—and we are allowed to, like, pick and choose what to engage in ourselves,
0: You're also a filmmaker and an actor, and I loved Town. And there was this part that stuck out to me in the film, where you're talking to your love interest, and there's this moment where you say, I know my body looks like a boy, and it's quote-unquote so gross. And that scene was so loaded for me, you know, growing up and not necessarily having the most female figure, what is considered to be a female figure, And I was curious if that was a real experience or did you ever feel ill at ease before that or about having an athletic body or can you tell us about the origin of
1: how that happened? Yeah, I think all the characters in my movies are some sort of, they're patchwork quilts of people I know or experiences I've had. And that's, um, you know, that makes the movies more specific and more real. Um, And certainly that scene just felt like while that exact moment may not have happened in the exact way it mm-hmm. could have happened. And it and it has happened in its, its own ways in my life and in people that I know, you know, their lives. And so, yes, it's like, and that's so important, I think, in storytelling and in movies that, like, even if something is fictional, um, you know, save for some genre films, most of it, like, hopefully is something that, like, could have happened. Right. And yeah, that feeling of like, I'm a muscular person who looks more manly than the guy in front of me is a real feeling. And I even experienced it when I went to Greece before the Olympics. I went to train over there and I was training around this track one day and these little girls came up to me and they were like watching their brothers play soccer in the infield. And they were like, why do you look? like, the way you look. And I didn't really understand at first, and then I realized they meant my mm-hmm. muscles. And, you know, there are female athletes in Greece. There are just fewer of them. And this was, like, a mountain town, remote Greece, so there might not mm-hmm. have been anyone who looked like me there. And, you know, I just sort of tried to explain to them that I was an athlete and that they could mm-hmm. be an athlete too. And that is, that is one of the reasons why I love going over there and, you know, being a part of Greek like athletic culture because there there aren't as many visual representations of what we might expect of our body different than what we see out of our out of our parents or family or you know immediate ecosystem
0: I'm curious what was the most surprising thing about going to the Olympics The most surprising thing about going to the Olympics was
1: that you I think we go there thinking that it's going to be an event, like a one, you know, a moment or a few moments. And that's what we see on TV, right, growing up. And then when you get there, I think we realize as athletes that it's really a process and that even though our bodies are fully formed, our minds um, are, you know, everywhere. And it's like a coming of age. And it happens in the village. And you're there for like a month if you want to stay. I stayed and it's a process. Wait, you can
0: stay. you can
1: stay in the Olympic
0: Village for a month.
1: Well, the Olympics is like almost a month long. If you get there a few days, you know, if you get there ahead of, like I got there a few days before opening ceremonies and you could stay all the way. Um, I'm not sure how it will look if there's like a COVID Olympics, but that's like normal. Yeah. Norm, you know, normal times, healthy times. And uh, it's a process. And so I think the most surprising thing was how much, you can grow and change during that time and how much the people there are really human. And what we see on TV isn't like the whole story. What we see on TV is like their peak body moment. But it's, it's really like you're in a, the most exclusive, you know, college campus ever in the village. <laughs> and so much happens in there. And it is a process, you know, that was so cool.
0: Was it so surreal to arrive at a space that you had been training for and dreaming of your whole life? Was there a moment when it all just hit you?
1: Yeah, it was like walking into opening ceremonies because the Greek team goes in first. And so you feel like you are like a a pop star and like walking (laughs) into some kind of like, afterlife or something all at once because it's so um, stimulating. And you see these people around you, like you are the show. And so the opening ceremonies was like that for me. And you know, I cried. I could not help it. It was so emotional.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I can't imagine. How did it feel after you ran? Because everyone does one event, right? Is that kind of how it works? It depends on your sport.
1: I mean, like soccer with running oh with running even that there's rounds but i had one event so i had one race and when i was done you know i ran a national record and my personal best and Mm -hmm. um i think like 80 percent of this race ran national records like it was the fact you know the world record was broken so it was like an amazing race
0: the world record was broken in your
1: correct yes crazy it was amazing and uh the thing i remember most was that at the finish line um Waiting for all the other women to finish because there were no like coaches there, like, no one was there to scoop anyone up, and everyone's like on the floor and you know, panting and sweating and crying and you know, hurting and just feeling Mm -hmm. that tremendous sense of like wanting to be there for these women. And just we couldn't even talk to each other, some of us because just different languages, but there was that joint feeling of teammateship, and it was so beautiful. And it felt, I felt so lucky. Because I knew like what it must have taken for each of these women to get to that moment, mm-hmm. and you know, whether it was their personal best or not, that is an accomplishment, and that is a celebration. So that was the thing that I'll you know remember forever, is just like waiting and being there with the people, the women, and just feeling like, even though we just raced, we were kind of all in that together.
0: I want to talk about your post-Olympic life because you experienced an epic down and while I'm I can imagine the years you clocked putting into the Olympics the down is still relatable right like whether it's it's doing your senior thesis or you know even the day after your wedding I haven't gotten married but I've so I've heard this this down happens and I'm curious if you could tell us about your post-Olympic period
1: yeah so the I mean, I think there's an adrenal fatigue associated with chasing any big dream or any big peak mm-hmm. in your life. But so few of us are like prepared for that moment after because right. we've been so focused on the goal itself that of course we're not gonna think about the moment after. And I, you know, it's a really well it's a really well-known secret in the Olympic community that there's that post-Olympic depression, whether people win or get last. You know, it's like, it's the feeling is the same, I think, in some ways. And I didn't respond super well because I wasn't prepared for it. And because I'd been um, chasing my whole life for this, like, these external goals to, like, I guess, solve Mm -hmm. what, you know, what was an internal problem, I wanted to know what the next goal was immediately. And I wanted to be chasing it, you know, yesterday. And so I pressed ahead and I was like, what is the next thing? And I want to be moving towards it. And it was not sustainable because um, I like needed to respect that there was like an actual fatigue, you know, and a mm-hmm. come down, you know, that, that I needed to respect mm-hmm. and I didn't. And so I stopped sleeping and um, had this post-Olympic depression and it was really quite awful for me because I was resistant to accepting it because I thought that it might mean that I was um, becoming like my mom. And I really did not want to admit that. And so I tried to like force my feelings and I was sleeping, you know, one hour a night and trying to run 120 miles in a week, which was so stupid. Wait, wait.
0: So so you were sleeping one hour a night and running over a hundred miles a week. Like how does that even, how could you even physically do that? Well, I was like really
1: fit from the Olympics and you can't do it. So I got injured and I um, became depressed, which I think is like, you know, some sort of actual changes happen in your brain if you have the kind of depression that I had, which was like a situational crisis. So you're like, okay, okay. And then you kind of fall off like a cliff of sorts and you could be okay again. But I didn't get help right away until my dad made me. And then I met this therapist. But what signs was he seeing?
0: Because you just tried to push through it, right? You tried to run through it. Yeah. Is that what happened? Like, you would just push yourself every day physically, and then eventually, like, you wouldn't stop training after the Olympics? well, when I was injured, I couldn't train, but I was like, it was more
1: that, like, my mind wouldn't slow down, and, and I had thoughts of, like, I've messed everything up and I need to go back and put everything back together the way it was. And I think what can happen when you are mentally ill is you feel like your life will never get better and it will only get worse. And if you have those feelings, that's, you know, if if we think we know our future, that's like a, 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 an impossible mm-hmm. thing to know. And mm-hmm. I was sure that I knew my future, that it was going to be awful. And like, that was a red flag. Not sleeping was a red flag. And, um, so my dad made me get help and then I developed this vocabulary to um, really see my brain as a body part. And, right. you know, I realized that it, I could get injured just like any other body part and my brain could heal just like any other body part. And I kind of committed to
0: mm-hmm.
1: my Olympic dream mindset, but put that towards healing and um, thankfully was able to to heal, And I, and I think the, the real conclusion is that, you know, the brain is a body part and like we can approach our healing in a similar way that we might with our body, whether it's like a prehab ahead of time mm-hmm. or just committing to a plan and a doctor and actions the way we might if, if we were physically injured. Because it is a physical injury.
0: So you said your brain's a body part. What was it about this idea that you found so helpful?
1: Yeah, well, I think what I found so helpful about the, you know, the analogy or the actual reality that our brain is (laughs) a body part was that we know as people and as athletes in particular, what to do when our body, like with our body, like we know, how to prevent injury. We know how to deal with injury when it comes mentally and physically. And it's just something that we're programmed, you know, to understand and learn about from like a really young age. And so what was really helpful about relating that to mental health was that I it gave me a a roadmap for exactly how to approach it and what to do about it. And that's everything from, you know, accepting that, it's real and like tangible, it's not a choice to um, expecting that healing takes time, just like Mm -hmm. if we break a bone, it takes time to not feeling shame about it, to asking for help and realizing that only actions and time will change, you know, the injury. So it was like everything from like what to literally do to how to visualize myself and accept it. And it was just so useful and so practical and so instantaneously uh helpful to me mm-hmm. and I think to to anyone because today I find that people, not just professional athletes, are taking care of their bodies and like paying attention to our bodies more than we maybe did ten years ago and so I think that this metaphor or this you know reality is is really useful to anyone, you know. And it's, it would have been really useful to me to know, you know, five, five years ago instead of, you know, when I really needed that wisdom.
0: What were, were you having any dialogues about what you were going through at the time? Like, were you sharing your depression or what what your struggle was when you were going through it? What did that look like for you? Yes. uh, I did not share about it with
1: anybody except for my core team. And I think it is okay if we have something going on with our health, whether it's like mental or physical, that we make the number one goal healing. Mm -hmm. And for some people, maybe it would be useful to like share with people beyond their core team. And that's like personal to you. I think just like willpower stuff is, you know, like what drains your willpower is personal to you too. Uh, For me, the act of like sharing it was going to take more energy and not be as useful mm. than just sharing it with the people that were useful to me, which was like my dad, my family, my husband, and my doctor. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that was partly because it was a little bit, you know, it was a time when I didn't feel completely confident and okay with being sick. Um, but also in reality, it It was a time that I need to buckle down and focus on health above all. And it takes a lot of energy for me to share things with people. Mm -hmm. It's like really a thoughtful, curated thing. It doesn't feel like um, it's something that would have helped me heal at that time. And so, yeah, I didn't really share. And I think it would have been nice to feel like I could have shared, but I doubt that I would have shared much more than I did, to be honest.
0: Mm -hmm. And when you did share, how did you feel after or what were some of your friends' responses? So I
1: really, I mean, I think my friends kind of vaguely knew what was going on, but we didn't have like such a shorthand about it that I think I would now where it's like, look, I Mm -hmm. had an injury on my brain. Like I could, I could be pretty like straightforward with it now because I have the vocabulary, but I really didn't have it then so the chapter that I wrote in Bravey about depression was really one of the first times that I shared about it with anyone. Oh, wow. Um, and it helped me to be able to like focus and find the right words for it and tell it in a way that I felt comfortable. And that's why I think books are like a wonderful medium because they just allow you that, you know, thoughtfulness and that, that mo that, that like separation from the actual time, you know? And so, yeah, I think the book was like when I went into the most detail about it and it felt good because it felt like I could find words that I wish that I knew um, before and that hopefully the detail that I go into lets other people in, in a way where no matter how high or low they're feeling that I've like, felt those highs and lows. And that's another Mm -hmm. thing I think about the book is that I wanted to show like those peak moments and then the really low ones because I've experienced them all. And, you know, that feels like maybe it could let people in, you know?
0: Are you training for Tokyo 2021 right now?
1: (sighs) Yeah. So (laughs) I needed
0: to like respect the
1: book release as a kind of Olympics for me. And as you mm-hmm. can probably imagine, the book release was planned like well before the Olympics got pushed. And so mm-hmm. I thought that I would have maybe competed in the Olympics last year and then been able to like completely focus on the book release. The Olympics got pushed and I still needed to allow the book to have its moment because it felt like an Olympic dream to me, you know, like it really was a big goal. And and I felt really excited about it. And so I gave it its moment and mm-hmm. I didn't race during like the kind of month lead up and the month of release, even though I had, I might've needed to race in a way, but I, I just knew that it, this was a goal of mine. And so now I'm trying to respect that like post book, you know, like the little kind of adrenal fatigue that you have. Yeah. And now I'm starting to slowly build up training I would still have to hit an Olympic standard to go to Tokyo. And so I have races planned in the late spring before the deadline ends. So there's that that I'm building towards and with eyes on Tokyo, of course. And then there's also like fall marathons that I want to run. And that's like beyond those are like post Olympic goals. Like I think it would be fun to run the Boston marathon or the New York City marathon because I've never run those. (laughs) Um, but certainly Tokyo's on my mind. It's just that everything has kind of, some things have kind of like flipped on their heads and some things haven't moved like the book. Yeah. And so I've just had to like navigate that a little bit.
0: Yeah. Right. And knowing that you hit it down last time after the Rio Olympics, would you, assuming you go to Tokyo, would you approach it differently or plan for it differently than you did Rio? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm already approaching it differently because I'm like the book is a kind
1: of Olympics and I'm going to like pause afterwards and not just like go straight, you know, to like a race next weekend or something like that. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, after Tokyo, I think everybody will need every athlete will need like that exhale and hopefully we can embrace it as like a normal thing to pause and mm-hmm. you know the toughest question that we get it's funny cuz someone asked me like what can we do to help prevent the post olympic depression or all this stuff mm-hmm. and honestly even though i need to just be able to like handle this question i think the hardest question that you get is like what's next and you mm-hmm. get that question the minute you accomplish something and yeah. uh, and that question's not going to go away so i just need to learn how to not take that as like pressure to know what's next You know, Mm -hmm. so it's on me. I think to be responsible and expect the question, and then not let it like feel so personal. But it's also a question that like is a little bit problematic in some ways, where it's like, whatever. I I need to address (laughs) it myself. I think because we just can't stop that question from coming. But it's a tough question to get if you're trying to like pause and respect those post-peak moments.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Also, I mean, if I was an Olympian, I'd just be like, what do you mean? What's next? I just did my personal best in exactly. the Olympics. Like,
1: what yeah, kind of question exactly. is
0: that? What's what's next for you? You know?
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, like it's a well-intentioned question. It's just one that like most Olympians don't think about until after. And that's like maybe the first time they're answering that question should be like. A month later, like to themselves and not yeah. on like an NBC, you know, big interview or something. But again, I think <laughs> that being calm and, and knowing that for us, maybe what's next is like just soaking in what, what was the day before, like a tea bag steeping or something, you know, <laughs> like we're not gonna like pull the tea bag out right away. We're gonna let it like become its like nice tea. Um. (laughs) Yeah, It needs to become become its flavor, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: I love that. I have one more question, which is, what drives you?
1: What drives me?
0: Well, okay, I think before the Olympics, it was
1: like trying to push away from becoming this thing that I'd built my mom to be that I'd, you know, observed and that wasn't very positive. It was kind of like a running away from something. Mm -hmm. And now I think I overcame something that was going to be one of the more challenging things that I would have to overcome in life. And I know I have the toolkit for it if I ever feel anything like that again. And so I think that what drives me now is like curiosity and Mm. it's beautiful to want to get up and try my best, even if I may never be the best, but I think it's beautiful to like have the chance and the desire to try my best. So what I'm going after is just that.
0: That, my friends, was Alexi Pappas. You can follow her at Alexi Pappas and me at Gillian Sigetsky. And you can always DM me with comments and questions and I will answer. I want to hear from all of you what you thought of the show, what you didn't like, what you did like, who you want to hear from next, the whole nine yards. I'm about to put on my track pants and do an 18-mile run. Let's see how far I get. It will likely be around the block. Until next time.